Uh, hey, we're continuing our series in Colossians now. Um, if you've been around, you know it's called Rooted. Uh, that, that word actually comes from one of the passages in the scripture where Paul tells the Colossians to stay rooted and built up in Christ, stay, stay grounded in Jesus. So that's the idea of the series. Um, one historian pointed out that Colossae was, was the least important city to which one of Paul's letters was ever addressed. It, its heyday was in the past. It was a little bit of a backwater. So you might wonder, why do we have this letter to kind of a smaller church? The reason is very simple and very clear. It addresses an issue that all Christians have confronted across all cultures and all times. Uh, the fancy 25-cent uh, word for it is syncretism meaning you hear the gospel of Jesus and mash it up with some other beliefs and that becomes the working thing you actually believe in your life, like what's functioning in your heart and mind. So Paul is warning the Colossians against that. They were kind of newer believers. He's saying, look, this is a thing. It can happen. Don't do that. Stay rooted in Jesus. Uh, last week, if you were here, you heard Pastor Sam preach a great message on being complete in Christ, how to live, why to live that way, and what to watch out for. Today's passage starts with the word therefore, so it's pointing back to that passage from last week. So with that in mind, let's listen to the scripture now. Our reading today comes from Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humanity or the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Andy. So when I was in graduate school, seminary, that's a three-year program, seminary is, between my middle and senior year, I served a church in Kuwait City, Kuwait. I took an internship in, in Kuwait. I learned many things there. Chief among them was summertime is not the time to go to Kuwait. <laughs> I learned that a vast majority of Kuwaitis leave Kuwait during the summertime and go to Cyprus or somewhere not quite as hot. But um, the plan 
for me, I was going to be there for three months. I got a 10-year visitor's visa. It was right in between the Gulf Wars. So if you were an American citizen, you kind of had gold standard status with the Kuwaiti government. I had a 10-year visitor's visa. It was good for as long as my passport was good. I could go any time. But it was only good for 30 days. You could only be in the country for 30 days. So the plan for me was to fly to Bahrain twice during the summer. Just fly out, go out of the country, then come right back. Just it's a short hop over. So that was the plan. On day 32, I sat bolt upright in bed at four in the morning and thought, I am an illegal alien. <laughs> I had forgotten to fly to Bahrain <laughs> and I was now illegal. Not kind of illegal, completely illegal. There's checkpoints. When you're, when you're driving, they stop you and check. You have to show your papers. And I just had this feeling. I, I had never had that feeling before. I am I'm out of the bounds of, of, of the law. And it was a very strange feeling, I've got to say. We'll come back to being outside the, the boundary of the law in a moment. The passage for today begins with the word, therefore, And if our hope is to kind of wrestle with Scripture and what the text actually says, whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what's the therefore there for? Keep that in mind. It's a good Bible study thing when you're reading on your own. You've got got to go back and like, why is it there? In this case, it refers to the three verses just prior. Here are those verses. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So those verses obviously talk about the change in status God gives uh, to us when we place our trust in Jesus. It's by grace and, and through faith, right? If, if you're newer to the Bible and the, and the New Testament, the New Testament can talk about salvation in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense. Very interesting when you kind of think about that. Specifically when the New Testament talks about salvation in the past tense, they have been saved. This is when someone comes to Christ and says, hey, I'm, I'm giving up, I'm waving the white flag, I can't do it on my own. And, and we, we place our trust in, in Jesus. The, the scripture says you have been saved, right? God sa- saved you. Almost all of the language, I shouldn't say almost all, a lot of the language in that kind of past tense of salvation has legal undertones. Uh, meaning, when a person trusts Christ, God changes their legal status from guilty as charged and responsible for full payment for sin. Two, covered by Christ, redeemed by him, bought back for God, restored to right relationship with God. It's a change in legal status. And if we look back to those, those three verses to which our passage today is referring, that's what the, quote, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness means. And this doesn't happen through anything that we do, but by God's declaration, we are declared righteous. That's what this verse from Romans actually means. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that phrase in the original language, justified through faith, actually literally means having been declared to be in a right relationship with God by God. God, God makes a declaration and the legal status is changed. So the therefore in our passage refers to the change in status God gives us in Jesus. And with that therefore, Paul then begins to unpack a couple implications of that change in status. And there are two negative commands that he gives. You might have caught that. The first is, do not let anyone judge you. And the second is, do not let anyone disqualify you. So look at, look at the first one first. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now that's, that's very clearly talking about some elements of the Jewish law. Uh, don't let any, anybody judge you by what you eat or drink. This is a reference to the kosher laws, you know, observance to, to a kosher diet. Or with regard to a religious festival, new moon celebration, Sabbath. This is a kind of a typical list of Jewish holy days or, or celebrations. So, so what's going on here is Paul is saying, don't let somebody judge you based on your observance of the law. And by judge, it doesn't mean like look down on you or think judgmentally of you. What the word judge means is don't let somebody say that you're outside the bounds of the law, like I was in Kuwait, right? Don't let anybody say you're outside the bounds of the law because you haven't done these things. Don't let anybody judge you. Now, if you took a philosophy class, you might have caught that part about uh, the shadow of the things to the reality in Christ. Wait a second, isn't Paul just using Plato here? Um, shadows and substance, shadows being the things we perceive in reality, our senses in a material world, but referring to a kind of a spiritual reality which is better up, up in heaven somewhere. Short answer, no, that's not what he's doing. Uh, he, he might be referencing cultural touch points but he's not affirming that, that philosophy. Jesus said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's what Paul's talking about here. Jesus fulfills the law. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was there largely to sear on our souls our need for redemption, to make visibly and in a sensory way, because you could smell the offerings being offered, right? Being burned on the altar, to make very clear to us that something needs to happen to make up for our sin. Atonement needs to be made. And the reality of that is found only in Jesus because he has, again, quote, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Right? The, the next command Paul gave, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. And this is, this is talking about kind of self-appointed super spiritual people who've maybe had some kind of mystical spiritual experience, visions or other, some kind of dramatic spiritual experience. Talking about people who've had something like that, stepping in and saying to people who haven't had something like that, hey, you're not on the, wrong, you're not on the right track because you haven't had the same kind of experience I have or you're not on the right track because you don't value those things as much as I do. 
Scripture is quite clear that when the Holy Spirit comes, God will give gifts through the Spirit to God's people. Back to the prophet Joel, right? And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And prophesy doesn't just mean predict the future. It means hear God on behalf of others, right? Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. These are all kind of mystical, spiritual experiences. And God is saying, I will give these to people. They are not unreal. They're real. I remember I accompanied uh, our friend Dave Bast and Jan Fields uh, and another friend to Istanbul uh, with Words of Hope where we met with a great number of new Iranian believers. One of the things that really stuck out in my mind when we went around the room and did introductions, there were maybe 20, 25 of them a great number of them would say, look, I, I, I came to Jesus because I had a dream. I dreamt uh, that, that Jesus was there and he told me to go do this. So I did. And a person at the radio shop gave me a Bible. I mean, so, I mean unbelievable stuff. But, but it just went around the room very clearly. God does this. God works in this way. Those things are real. But... You can't let someone who's had an experience like that say you're not on the right track if you haven't. That's what Paul's saying. It's about Jesus having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. And that's it. Paul goes on to say, hey, people who make those claims, look, they're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. Their minds have made a shift from some big spiritual thing to be unspiritual because they're thinking about that thing now in that experience now in, in a worldly kind of way. So two implications of the fact that God has canceled our legal indebtedness. Don't let anybody judge you based on religious activity. And two, don't let mystical spiritual experience replace your primary commitment to Jesus. Interestingly, Paul names the problem as opposed to just addressing symptoms of the problem. I don't know if you caught that. One of my longtime friends and mentors, uh, some of you know him, Tom Clegg, he's preached here in the past. Uh, as, as we've discussed leadership issues over the years, one of my favorite questions that he asks of me when trying to process a difficult situation is this. Is that the real problem or is that a symptom of the problem? It's a great question. Take it away and think about it yourself. Right? It's a great question because as I've learned, many of the things we consider problems are in fact symptoms of another problem. And it's possible to treat symptoms for a long, long time and never resolve the problem. So here... Paul names the problem. Did you catch it? They have lost connection with the head. There it is. From whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. They lost connection with the head. See, the presenting issues were spiritual judgment or super-spirituality, but those were only symptoms of the problem, not the problem itself. The problem was that they had lost connection with Jesus, the only king and head of the church. Because when you're connected with Jesus, you have in your heart 
the great truth of the gospel that he has canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness. And, and all, of, all of the imagery of that, right? Uh, of Christ doing what he did on the cross um, for us and, and, and what that means for us. When you're connected with the head, the gospel's in your heart. So sim- symptoms and, and problems, just for consideration, consider your life uh, right now. I don't know where you're at today, what's going on for you. What problems are you facing? Are, are those things the problems themselves? Or might they be symptoms of a problem? And then finally this, is the problem in any way related to a loss of connection with Jesus? I just, I just wanna be really clear here, I'm not at all insinuating that all problems come to us because we've lost connection with Jesus. That would be horrible theology. That's not true. And as a whole, human beings encounter many symptoms that come from the problem of a loss of connection with our creator and king. So it's good to ask ourselves, where do I see that in my life right now? And where, how then do I need to turn back to Jesus to reestablish connection? Because if you don't know this already, that's the to-do. The the to-do list is get connected again with Jesus, not stop doing this, that, and the other thing. You can try doing that your whole life and it'll end in abject failure. The goal is to get connected with Jesus again. Symptoms and problems. Paul goes on to the last portion of the scripture for the day. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belonged to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. More, more change in status language, right? Since you died. By the way, next week's passage will begin with, since you were raised with Christ. So there's, Paul has a continuing argument here, but today it's since you died with Christ. What does that mean? There's too many of us to answer out loud in this setting, but really for a second, in your, in your mind, really answer that question. What does it mean that you as a follower of Jesus have died with Christ? If you had to write out a quick answer right now, what would you write? I mean, we're still alive physically, so clearly we're not, I mean, it's not a physical thing, but how is it that those who trust Christ have died with Christ. Look look at Romans 7. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ 
that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. See, what, what dying with Christ means, or at least part of what it means, is that in Christ we have died to the law. And we are no longer bound by its legal obligations because Jesus has obeyed for us, right? Think of our communion liturgy. Do you remember this? We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by him. To fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law. To fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law. Right? Jesus fulfilled for us all obedience to the divine law. Not some, not most. All of it. I mean, this is, this is substitutionary atonement. This is the gospel. This is Jesus living a perfect life, obeying God's law perfectly, dying on our behalf, paying for our sin, and then his perfect performance record being applied to me in my life and you in your life. Amazing. Such incredibly good news. That's, that's the gospel. And, and when his perfect obedience is applied to us by God's grace and through faith in Jesus, we're back to the legal thing now, right? God declares, makes a legal declaration that Jesus' perfect obedience now applies to the Christ follower. That's the change in legal status. So you, before God, when you, by God's grace and through faith in Jesus, are in a trust relationship with Christ, legally, God sees you according to Jesus' perfect performance record. And if you can imagine your way into living in that space in all of life, you can start to taste what Christians of the past called the wonderful freedom of the children of God, right? Because you can just live in grace. You can take off the religious tool belt and throw it away because you don't, you don't need to do all that stuff. See, the, 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 the quote religion of the people who were kind of interfering with the Colossians was really kind of a religion of the world. It was based on the elemental spiritual forces of this world. It was a worldly religion. Here's how one commentator describes what was happening. The religion of the visitors is essentially the religion of the world. Of course, the world cannot do without religion, but since it rejects the truth of Christ, it must find its religion elsewhere. The elemental spirits of this universe are glad to oblige. Their leader considers himself the prince of this world and therefore is happy to provide a religion that can seem to satisfy people while keeping them from God. And, and Paul is saying, look, as a Christian, as, as a person who trusts Jesus, your status has already been changed. Like, 
You don't have to fly to Bahrain to get your visa punched again. You know, you're a citizen. You're, you're stat, you've been declared righteous. Nothing can ever change that. No one can take that away, no matter what they say, no matter what happens in life. You don't have to play by the world's rules. You know, you died to those ways of thinking, world religion that conceives of religious activity as the only way to work your way up to God. So why are you living by the rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Those are all sensory kinds of things. There's a name for that kind of spiritual approach. It's called asceticism. Religious approach marked by abstinence from sensual pleasure for the pursuit of spiritual goals. With the larger spirit of avoiding that which makes us unpresentable to God. And there it is. Right, there's the thing that bridges the context from when Paul was writing to the Colossians way back there, it was the backwater city, to us where we live today and will live tomorrow. This idea that we can avoid stuff that makes us unpresentable to God and, and in so doing, make ourselves more presentable to God. That's the way the spiritual logic goes. And let me tell you, this whole avoid the bad to make yourself good is a major spiritual problem. Crops up in the church all the time. Our church, other churches. And the simple truth is, religion might make people better. The gospel makes people new. And there is a vast difference between those two things. If, if we understand the real problem, and let me just say what the real problem is. The, the problem is that we have a sinful nature. What that means is not that we do a bad thing now and then. The problem is not behavioral at its core. The problem is that in our nature, we are prone to behave badly. It's a broken nature thing not a bad behavior thing. If your thinking is that sin is primarily bad behavior, then the logic is, well, hey, let me avoid that behavior. I'll be less unpresentable to God and more presentable to God. Look, I can be my own savior. That does not work. It never has, it never will. It's the fundamental message of so many worldly religions. And it is what the Bible refers to as the way that seems, this is a proverb, a way, there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end leads only to death. It doesn't get you anywhere. It's worthless. You'd be better off going to a buffet on Sunday morning if that's what you're doing here. This is the visual image of that approach. Oh, did I miss one? Mm, I did. Worldly religion, worldly religion says avoid what makes you dirty to make yourself presentable to God. For those of you filling in the blanks, don't miss that one. Uh, so that whole approach of trying to like make yourself more presentable is this. We can go to the next slide. Right? It's the person in the ocean. There's no land anywhere around. You need help. So I'm going to grab myself by the hair and pull myself out of the ocean. That's what this spiritual, it, 
that's what the spiritual approach is, right? If I stop doing bad stuff to make myself less unpresentable to God and therefore more presentable, then I'll be getting somewhere, right? Eh, no. There's, you've got no leverage. There's no, you can't get a leg up. It doesn't work. It's fruitless. And by the way, it's exhausting. And it's not what God is offering us. Right? Worldly religion is that. Uh, true religion, faith in Christ is something completely different. In Christ, we're freed from that. I don't, I don't know how you, that little image strikes you. I don't know if you can relate to that if you're thinking, man, yeah, I'm, I kind of see myself trying to do that now and again. Or, yeah, I'm... You know, how's it going for you? I mean, if you have trusted Jesus with your life, your status with God has changed. Not kind of. It's not just like a religious idea that we're talking about on Sunday morning. Like you can hold it in your heart. Your, your status with God is in a different place. Not based on anything you do, based on everything that God did by God's grace entirely and through faith in Jesus, right? You don't need religious activity to make yourself right with God. Jesus has made you right with God and only by God's gracious declaration that Jesus' perfect obedience is applied to you. You are free from the world and its regulations and you are free for a life lived following Jesus, not just thinking well of him, but actually following him. If the, if the uh, part about trusting Christ, receiving God's grace through faith in Jesus is, um, is new to you, or if you don't know that you've done that. Um, Mark, can we go back to the slide before this, the, the picture slide really quick, the little guy? Uh, and if those of you who know me know, I've shared this before, but I didn't grow up as a Christian. I came to Christ as a senior in college. And when people talked about, you know, when they threw all the lingo around, like, hey, you need to give your heart to Jesus. You need to, you need to become a Christian. You need to repent of your sins. I, I always thought to myself, I never verbalized it, um, but I always thought to myself, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I hadn't, like what are you actually asking me to do? Right? What are, what are you, my understanding of what God is actually asking us to do is, is to give up entirely on that. That's what, it's a transfer of trust because that poor, poor sap right there is thinking, I can do it. I've got a chance. You don't. That's the truth. You do not have a chance. So give up the fight, give up the struggle, and just to talk straight to, you know, direct people, people who like that, you're not going to get it done yourself. You got to stop trusting yourself. Your pride's in the way. Stop it. God has done something for you that you need. Say yes and stop saying no. That's the direct invitation, right? I could maybe word it a little more graciously to the softer hearts. 
but it's the same. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. If you're thirsty, come drink from the water of life, right? All these invitations. Just stop doing that and look to Jesus instead and put your trust in him. Put your reliance upon him, not in your own self trying to pull yourself out of the water. And as we've been concluding every message in this series, we'll, we'll read the verses upon which the whole series is based. But this morning, I wonder if we might read those aloud together. Join me in this, would you? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness to us. We know that both your kindness and your patience are intended for our salvation. Uh, By your spirit, bring that truth deep to all of our hearts and help us turn to you uh, from wherever we are right now. In Jesus' name, amen.